is Bloomberg Surveillance. You can't count on the United States providing all the demand for the world. We can't be the consumer first and last resort. There needs to be more. I think the Fed got it right last December when they said they would have four increases this year. Investment really is the global issue that we're facing a shortage of right now, and that's really holding back the global economies. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, Michael McKee and Tom Keene. We welcome you on a Monday. It's a super Monday for us on economics, finance, investment, international relations, indeed a little bit of politics as we go to the um, set of elections that we see tomorrow. As always, Bloomberg Surveillance, we're brought to you by Marks Paneth LLP, ranked among the top three forensic accounting firms in New York by the New York Law Journal for the sixth, sixth, S-I-X-T-H, sixth year in a row. Visit MarksPaneth.com, M-A-R-K-S, Paneth, P-A-N-E-T-H, MarksPaneth.com. Um, I've been waiting for this all weekend. Mike's going to bring them in. The paper... It had a strong set of authors, David Greenlaw, iconic at Morgan Stanley, Peter Hooper of Deutsche Bank, and with terrific IMF experience, Frederick Mishkin with a terrific textbook on macroeconomics, a former Fed governor, and Amir Sufi, who owns fiscal debt analysis. And, Mike, there was another guy who helped with the paper. <laughs> Michael Faroli, J.P. Morgan Securities Chief U.S. Economist. Uh, we should point out this is uh, Friday. The Chicago Booth School every year holds a monetary policy forum, which has become the event. It is. For true, anybody true. interested in uh, what monetary policy is, uh, the challenges and the options for monetary policy ahead. It's once a year, and it is uh, the, the biggest hitters in economics and monetary policy all over the country. You can say that because I wasn't there. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, And Michael Faroli selected as uh, sort of the lead author on a paper um, on what the Fed's supposed to do about communications. This is one of the longer papers I've ever read (laughs) because the Fed has some significant issues in terms of how it communicates with the markets. And I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. But uh, the group you mentioned put together some recommendations on what the Fed should be doing. And we welcome uh, Michael to talk about it with us. Uh, Obviously, uh, the Fed's had problems throughout the financial crisis in communicating its policies. But you start in the paper, Mike, with the, the, from the basis that as they normalize policy, communications becomes even more of a challenge. That's right. I think, uh, you know, when they were at the zero bound, there were some, um, I think, clear uh, communication layups, uh, in particular their ability to kind of uh, state that they were going to stay low for a very extended period and give some calendar dates to what they meant by that. I think now that we're getting away somewhat from the zero lower bound, uh, that raises some different issues about what, you know, what constitutes best policy in terms of say, communication about the, you know, the future path of interest rates. Well, it's easy to say uh, we don't like the way you communicated and uh, here's a different phrase you should use. But how did you go through and quantify the Fed's issues uh, the way economists tend to do and figure out where the problems are? Yeah, you know, so first of all, I think we want to give the Fed credit. They have come a long way from where they were in the early 90s when they didn't even communicate anything to the markets. Uh, and generally speaking, they are attempting to, I think, do the right thing. And theory would say that the right thing is to communicate a path that is very data dependent. So rather than give, you know, a specific 
uh, time horizon or say how many hikes we're going to do this year or next year, uh, you know, best policy would suggest that they try to convey to the market what matters to the Fed and how the Fed will react as as the data have changed. So they've done that. But, you know, what, what we did was kind of look at how um, how uh, rates respond to data surprises. And if the Fed isn't conveying an expectation that is data-dependent, we'd expect to see the market respond less to data and more to Fed communications, which at times has happened. Um, and, you know, part of that is, you know, what I just described as theory and theory uh, has met an imperfect world where sometimes, uh, you know, the market just doesn't understand what the Fed is saying, so they have to say it more bluntly and say, you know, we're not going to hike rates for, you know, X, X amount of time. Um, but ideally, you know, I think as we get away from the zero bound, uh, what would be ideal is for the Fed to, um, to continue to communicate uh, not so much, hey, we're going to hike four times this year or two times this year, but we're going to respond as we get closer to our mandate and, and really, you know, hammer home what the mandate is rather than X amount of dots, you know, having a certain amount of rate hikes. I look, uh, Michael Ferroli, congratulations on the paper. You've got a great set of papers cited in the back, including Orphanides' 2002 paper, which I call the Toolbox Paper. Rick Mishkin, who helped you write the paper 12 years ago, can central bank transparency go too far? Why are we still asking this question? I mean, Rick was way out front on this, as he always is, but that was 12 years ago, and we're asking the same question. Yeah, so, you know, I think at the time Rick Rick was partly asking about, uh, you know, whether Fed meetings should be televised. Um, That seemed to be a bad idea, and and I think that generally still is a bad idea. Uh, And I think there's now a slightly different issue, which is, you know, if the Fed in December, if the median person thought there was four hikes was the most likely thing, does it actually help to say that, or does it because it, you know, that, that median person felt that way the economy, which may be changing. And yeah. if the market only hears the four hikes but doesn't hear the part about uh, the economy yeah. changing, then, then there's, I think, a risk, uh, a risk of misperception. There. Would you get rid of the dots? I think, you know, I have to say our, our, our group of authors kind of cleaved on this issue. Um, I would probably favor getting rid of the dots. I think you either have to get rid of them or improve them. I would favor getting rid of them because I think improving them is going to be difficult. But there is an argument that, you know, if you add things like fan charts and so forth, that you could further convey the uncertainty that's um, uh, embedded in those dots. But I, I think the simplest thing may be just to get, get rid of them, that they may have outlived their usefulness. You know, and I think you see that particularly in this period since since December where the Fed has been getting a lot of grief from commentators about, you know, how out of touch their forecast is, well, you know, again, things change. And the Fed's job isn't, unlike many of us, to be, you know, great forecasters, is to react to what is changing in the economy. And, you know, arguably some, you know, some things have changed since December. And so if the dots are going to, you know, kind of have this uh, misperception attending to them, then maybe it's better just to get rid of them. But you know, I, so I think you either get rid of them or, or improve them by um, emphasizing uncertainty in the outlook.
The dots flow from the survey of economic uh, projections, which the Fed puts out uh, four times a year. Basically, their view, in individual views on what the economy is going to do. The interest, and you look at the SEP in the paper, um, and whether or not it should be retained or changed. The interesting thing to me is if you look at what the Fed forecasts for 2016, the economy is performing better in every category, better in every category mm-hmm. than what the Fed forecasts. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's going to be a tricky um, issue when you get to the March meeting in two weeks' time is that if you're getting closer to the mandate on both inflation and employment, why then would you be taking out a lot of rate hikes in in the dots? Uh, Now, two reasons for that. One, I think, is uh, the move down in some survey measures of inflation expectations probably got them a little bothered. Uh, And then the second thing is I think some of the developments in financial markets may tell them that, okay, while this year, you know, so far we're tracking better, financial markets are adding some, you know, downside risk to both uh, employment and inflation. Um, but but you're absolutely right that uh, uh, inflation's already now above where they thought it would be at in the fourth quarter of this year, and we're only two-tenths above their uh, fourth quarter unemployment rate forecast. So, um, you know, arguably we're, we're, we're getting pretty close to, you know, their – both of their goals. Well, what, what was the conclusion in terms of the, um, the survey of economic projections in terms of whether that needs to be changed? You know, I think in terms of the economic forecasts, uh, I don't think that itself uh, has too many problems with that. I think the market understands that their views on, um, you know, growth and inflation uh, uh, have uncertainty. And, and you also have to remember that they're required um, to publish that twice a year, so uh, publishing the economic forecast four times a year I don't think is much of a problem. I think it's more the issue of publishing the interest rate forecast and whether that is confusing the market right. to, to kind of have this this feeling that right. it's the Fed's plan rather than maybe, just a, uh, a forecast. Maybe if they all had a thoughtful pipe in their hands, smoking their pipe while they were speaking, that would cut down on the communication. That's my careful analysis. Yeah, yellow doesn't look like a pipe smoke. That's true. Uh, we'll catch your cigar probably. We'll come back with Michael Ferroli of J.P. Morgan and address the immediate American economy and, of course, his uh, truly outstanding research and call on the terminal value, where we're going, our potential GDP, if you will. Uh, we'll touch on that. Really must, must listen. Michael Ferroli out in our podcast. Look for them out at iTunes. Bloomberg Surveillance. Michael McKee and Tom Keen, uh, thrilled to bring them back to you. Our individual podcasts and the whole length of the program as well. Futures negative three. Time now to bring in Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Presidential hopefuls are in a final flurry of campaigning for support in states that will be voting in tomorrow's Super Tuesday contests. Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders will be in Massachusetts today. Donald Trump is clarifying his comments about a stance on receiving support from former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke. Trump on Sunday was asked on CNN whether he rejected support from Duke. Trump replied, I don't know anything about David Duke. This morning on NBC's Today Show, he said he was given a very bad earpiece for the interview and that he disavowed David Duke all weekend long on Facebook and on Twitter. The movie Spotlight won for Best Picture at this year's Academy Awards. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike Tom. Michael Barr, thanks so much. Foreign Exchange, Yen Weaker, uh, 113.07. Uh, 
Uh, interesting this morning. 113.07. Excuse me, stronger, I should say. That's the second time I've misspoke on that today. Must have stayed up too late for the Oscars. Yen stronger. I got that right. Stay with us. Bloomberg Surveillance. This news update brought to you by Cone Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory. During times of growth, crisis, or economic uncertainty, your business needs the Cone Resnick Advisory Group for the strategies to move forward. Find out more at ConeResnick.com. The Bloomberg Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow, and futures are moving lower this morning. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. Here's Bill Maloney. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Karen. U.S. futures have paired some of the losses since the last time we spoke. Dow futures now down 29 points. S&P's dropped three, and Nasdaq futures fall by 13. Earlier this morning, China cut reserve requirement ratio by 50 basis points, and European markets have either paired or reversed their losses. Spain is trading higher by 0.6%. On the U.S. economic front at 9 o'clock, ISM Milwaukee. At 9.45, Chicago Purchasing Manager. At 10 o'clock, Penning Home Sales. And at 10.30, Dallas Fed. In deal news, Chevron said a sale of its Asian germothermal energy operations could fetch as much as $3 billion. And Federal Mogul gets a $7 share merger offer from Carl Icahn. In other news, Valiant CEO to return from medical leave, company which drew guidance. Finally, some of your key Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. GM cuts a hole versus buy at Argus. At Citigroup, Gold Corp cut to neutral. KBR raised to neutral. Dillard's cut to sell over at Deutsche Bank. Campbell Super raised to neutral versus sell over at Goldman Sachs. And finally, Newfield Exploration raised to strong buy over at Raymond James. Live from the First of Breaking News Desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen? All right, thanks, Bill. And to hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. This Monday, Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Invesco. Invesco believes it's time to bench the benchmarks to consider active management and factor-based strategies. Find out more at Invesco.com slash high conviction. Uh, their chief U.S. economist, J.P. Morgan, Michael Ferroli with us uh, this morning. Michael, you did path-breaking work on the new terminal value where interest rates are heading towards a lower potential GDP. Have you recalibrated that call? Have you nudged it lower? We're actually in the process of recalibrating. Well, make that. some news. Come on, make some news this morning. <laughs> Please. Uh, uh, we're in the process of recalibrating it, and as you might suspect, uh, lower just given realized um, Productivity outturns and some of the developments we're seeing that suggest that productivity growth probably will stay subdued in the foreseeable future. Um, so uh, the path of trend growth does not look particularly boomy, at least compared to our own past experience. Do you see a recession out there? Well, um, I wouldn't say for this year we're looking for a recession, but, you know, all things come to an end, and we're probably closer to the end of this cycle than the beginning. I think pinning down that timing is difficult, but I would say within the next two or three years, the odds probably rise above 50%, if for no other reason than the unemployment rate is already close to Nehru and declining. Profit margins have peaked and are coming down, and uh, uh, the Fed at some point will need to respond to some of the uh, evidence of growing you know, unit labor cost pressures. So not for this year, but I would 
you know, I think like 17 or 18, you probably are getting into some risky territory. Well, in other words, is, are the markets too early on this? I mean, they, they seem to think we're going to see a recession in the immediate future. Um, you know, if that's what the, it's always difficult to know exactly what the markets are saying, but I would think the immediate future, you know, this year might be a little too soon. If, you know, as I said, I, I think the Fed is going to be pretty gradual uh, in terms of uh, putting, you know, tapping on the brakes. So generally, uh, you know, recession dynamics do need some Fed complicity to kind of finish the act. Um, and with prices still remaining, you know, pretty well contained thanks to some global pressures, I think, uh, you know, we're missing that one kind of critical ingredient, which is a, a more aggressive Fed. So I, I don't think we're headed for a recession this year, but it is, a, you know, a game of odds where you can't really be 100% certain. Well, then, uh, are the markets overreacting at this point to the G20? I mean, who would the G20 suggest the fundamentals are better than we think they are? Um, you know, I, to be honest, I've never really, f I know these G meetings kind of come and go and I've never, it's been a, a long while since any of them really gave me much to, um, sink my teeth into. So, uh, I, I, it, I, I just didn't see a whole lot there. <laughs> well, there wasn't a whole lot there, <laughs> which may be the disappointment. Mohammed uh, Al-Aryan is suggesting that they should have come up with some sort of uh, fiscal stimulus, which, of course, everybody knew they weren't going well, I mean, to do. It's, so it's, easier, it's easy for a bunch of finance ministers, central bankers, to say that. But then if you have to go back home and, you know, sell it to your Congress well, or Parliament, that's where it gets tricky. Mike, I'm glad you went here. What is the color of our austerity right now? Is the U.S. austere as Ireland went to the poll with their own unique calculus, or the United Kingdom struggles with it in other nations as well? Are we austere, Michael Furley? I would say currently the uh, fiscal policy looks to be pretty close to neutral. Uh, in other words, the government sector is basically expanding kind of in line with overall GDP growth. So it's neither stimulative nor austere. I mean, it had been austere for a couple of years, and some would argue that that uh, slowed the pace of recovery and probably with some, some reason. But I think currently right now we're, we're pretty close to neutral when it comes to U.S. fiscal policy. Michael Farley. Thank you very much. Just superb. Congratulations, Michael. Uh, Michael Furley, David Greenlaw, Peter Hooper, Frederick S. Mishkin, and Amir Sufi. Uh, can we sell Amir Sufi's book right now? Sure. It is a superb short treatise on the debt. It might have you read it. Yes, it is we read superb. It, came out and it is just superb. He was on the, he was on the show. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll redo that out on social here at some point. Yeah, you know we uh, we we admire all of them, and it was a a great deep dive this paper into uh, Fed communications, which matter a lot to the markets going forward. We have seen that, uh, and uh, we also uh, tip of the hat to the Booth School for inviting us and gets bigger a, every year it, it's just a an, gonna, an enormously valuable everybody <clears throat> says a meeting madison square garden next year you think so uh sure why not we'll we'll get the uh the, the boomer suite yeah maybe they'll bring the chicago blackhawks stanley cup did you see the trades that the blackhawks made yeah blackhawks gearing up Wow. Uh, a couple of trades from the, uh, the washington capitals and of course eric Stahl goes to the new york rangers so. yeah three o'clock this afternoon is the trade deadline.
You want, you I did not know that. We'll, uh, we'll, we, we will have a full analysis on tomorrow. A full analysis, surveillance analysis of the National Hockey League. We'll do that tomorrow. Michael McKee and I, we will be in Washington tomorrow at 99.1 FM Washington on Super Tuesday. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Coming up, the With All Due Respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit Land Rover, tristate.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event. Land Rover, above and beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It is 8.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene. Economic Indicators brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Kind of an odd day because ordinarily we would be heading into Jobs Week with something like the ISM report or, uh, or whatever, Tom, but it is the 29th of February. We don't have 29th of February very often, so we have um, some cats and dogs of indicators, none of which are coming out at 8.30. At, at 9.45, the Chicago purchasing managers uh, expected to fall to 52.5, and, and then pending home sales, they're uh, forecast to be higher by half a percent. Those are the big numbers. Yeah. Later today, also the Dallas Fed manufacturing activity. That you got to expect, um, since it covers the area that has uh, oil, oil yeah, is yeah, going to yeah. be, be... Tell me, Mike, you're, this is what you're so good at, ISM manufacturing tomorrow morning. First look for the first month, March 3rd. Is that number still a big deal if service sector is a bigger part of our economy? It's still a big deal for a couple of reasons. One, uh, people are concerned about jobs and income in the manufacturing sector. Uh, there's a feeling it gives a picture of where the economy is going. It's also a very old number. We've had many, many decades of ISM numbers, so it does give uh, economists a chance to you know, benchmark it, compare it against previous business cycles. It is expected to still be negative tomorrow. Economists forecasting 48.5. That's up from 48.2, yeah. but of course 50, the rough break-even line for expansion and contraction in that area. Eric Weissman with us right now with MFS, Massachusetts Financial Services, Boston. Eric Weissman, Dr. Weissman, uh, writes a lot on bonds and their strategy forward and also beautifully dovetails it into the larger picture. Uh, Dr. Weissman, good morning. What is your greatest distraction right now? There's so many of them. It's, it's, it's like a Howard Johnson's list of flavors. <laughs> it sure is. You know, when we were at... Ending 2015, there were a handful of issues that we were really focusing on, uh, most specifically oil and China and the dollar. And as we've entered into 2016, we get to add a few other items onto the list, and those would include negative rates and whether they're credible and whether they can help or whether that's a bridge too far, and financials in Europe and these flattening yield curves that continue to impact uh, financials right. negatively. So a whole plethora of things to be yeah. concerned about. You have a, as you do, there's always these, these single-sentence statistics in Weissman's writing. I didn't know this, folks. In the wake of the global financial crisis, value-added tax hikes outnumbered tax cuts 
18 to 1. That speaks to our austerity, doesn't it? We need to raise taxes if we're not going to reform uh, the social safety net. There's no other way that we can pay for all of these things. Uh, I would say that the missing link of all of our policies, our monetary policy, which I think is out over its skis, our fiscal policy that has gotten us perhaps into some of this mess, our foreign exchange policy is structural. It's all now about structural policy. And that's difficult. That's not the low-hanging fruit, and nobody wants to do it. What would you do if, uh, if you could change something? Well, I think that you really need to incentivize people to stay in the labor force longer. You need to incentivize a higher participation rate. We need to get rid of rigidities in product markets, which is a big issue in Europe, and most importantly in the United States. I think we need to reform the tax code, and we need entitlement reform. And these would be things that would really raise confidence in the market and allow us to believe that there is a long-term path out of this current malaise. On a scale of 1 to 10, what are the odds that any of that happens? <laughs> uh, well, not unlike interest rates by European policymakers, I would say it's negative. Negative 1, negative 2. It's not <laughs> between 1 and 10. <laughs> it is very unfortunate. Well, all right, we have negative rates in Europe. Um, at this point, uh, we have inflation rising in the United States, and we're going to see significant divergence over the year. A European um, inflation fell significantly uh, in the numbers announced today. It did. So we had numbers come out this morning that were lower and lower than expected. Uh, and I think that we are beginning to see some wage pressures in the U.S. We'll see how well that translates into headline and core CPI. Uh, in Europe, we're not seeing that. It makes sense. Our unemployment rate in the United States is around 5%, and we could quibble about how we measure that. And in Europe, it's 10%. So we may be getting close to that non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment in the U.S. In Europe, they're not close. So they shouldn't see that wage increase creep into higher headline right. inflation in Europe. Very quickly here, we'll come back. When does the uh, financial repression and Eric Weissman. I don't think that it ends in this cycle. And I think the very fact that monetary policymakers are willing to go so far off the beaten track uh, would tell you that they believe they can still influence policy in a positive way, and they will try and keep rates as low as mm -hmm. possible for as long as possible. Eric Weissman with us from Boston, Massachusetts Financial Service. MFS, thrilled to speak with him. He uh, manages bond funds. We'll talk about yield here more specifically, portfolio dynamics uh, in, <coughs> excuse me, in a bit. Uh, equities, bonds, currencies, commodities, what we're known for. Futures churning, the VIX closing 19.81, inside more complacent over its two-decade average of just above 20. Good stock market over the last week or two. The yield flat now. 1.75% yields were lower earlier. Uh, West Texas, a little green, up 18 cents. Brent up 52 cents. 35.62 on European global. Rent oil, gold up 7, 12.28. Uh, the ounce. Uh, yen, maybe I'll get it right this time. Stronger yen, 113.23. The euro weaker, 108.80 with DXY stronger. 98.34. The dollar index stronger. Time to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Super Tuesday voting is tomorrow. 
Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were both campaigned in Massachusetts today. Clinton routed Sanders in South Carolina over the weekend. Republican frontrunner Donald Trump continues to face sharp attacks from his main rivals, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. North Korean authorities presented a detained American student to foreign media today. University of Virginia student Otto Warmbier was arrested last month after removing a political slogan sign in the hotel where he was staying in Pyongyang. Warmbier apologized to the North Korean people. I committed my crime of taking out the important political slogan from the staff-only area of the Angokdo International Hotel, aimed at harming the work ethic and the motivation of the Korean people. North Korea has been suspected of coercing statements from foreign detainees. A ceasefire in Syria largely held for a second day. Russia and Saudi Arabia reported limited violations while airstrikes continued against Islamic State militants not covered by the partial truce. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Mike Lubar. Mike, Tom? Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here is John Stasho. All right, Mike, hard to win. When you can't make shots, take away the Knicks center, Robin Lopez. Last night, the other four starters combined to shoot under 25% at the Garden. Miami led all the way and won 98-81. Knicks have lost 14 the last 17. The Heat just added Joe Johnson after his release last week by Brooklyn. He scored 12 points in his Miami debut. NHL trade deadline, 3 o'clock today. Rangers made a move. Sending a prospect, two draft picks to Carolina for veteran Eric Stahl, who waived his no-trade clause, gets to play with his brother Mark. He'll be a free agent after the season. He figures to play tonight at the Garden against Columbus. Edmonton had lost seven in a row, suddenly scored three third-period goals and ended the Islanders' three-game win streak 3-1. Three to one. NCAA tournament in two weeks. Seton Hall's almost certainly going to make it. First time in a decade, Desi Rodriguez, 27 points and a 90-81 to 81 win over Xavier, who came in ranked fifth in the country, had just beaten top-ranked Villanova. As for St. John's, Coach Chris Mullen ejected in a 100-59 loss at Creighton. St. John's only once before lost a game by as much as 41 points, and that was in 1951. 25th win of the year for Monmouth. Iona won as well, staying a game behind in the MAC, where Manhattan lost at Ryder. Adam Scott, one-shot victory at the Honda Classic. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashow. Uh, John, uh, thank you so much. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Uh, again, uh, Michael McKee and I, on to Washington. We will uh, speak with Chairman Greenspan. Have that for you tomorrow. Jason Furman scheduled to join us on Bloomberg Television as well. Chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. We'll have other select Super Tuesday guests trying to. Mike, I think, what's our goal, Mike, after the, the absolute uniqueness of the weekend news flow? Do you have a goal in mind as we attack Super Tuesday? Well, I think we want to talk about what the economic impact of any of this may be. We've been talking with Eric Weissman about the kind of things that need to be done. And yeah. uh, let's look at it, uh, whether yeah. anybody would do them. My goal is the political mechanism, not the horse race. You can get that a lot of places, including the wonderful work of Mark Helper and, and John Heilman, with all due respect. Not the horse race, but just where do we go from here? That appears to be a mystery. In Washington tomorrow, Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Flushing Bank. Open a complete business checking account with $15,000 or more and get a free 16-gig Wi-Fi tablet. Visit FlushingBank.com for details. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. If you 
global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by CBOE VIX Options and Futures. Volatility can be harnessed with CBOE VIX Options and Futures. See disclosures and learn more at cboe.com slash powerful outcomes VIX. U.S. stock index futures are extending their gains after reversing earlier losses. This is China's central bank stepped up efforts to cushion the country's economic slowdown. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures up three points now. Dow E-mini futures up four. NASDAQ E-mini futures, their little change. The DAX in Germany is down 7 tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury up 2.30 seconds. The yield 1.75 percent. Yield on the two-year, 0.80 percent. NYMEX crude oil up 1.2 percent or 39 cents to 33.17 a barrel. COMEX gold up 7 tenths percent or $8.90 at 12.29.30 an ounce. The euro, $1.0882, the yen, 113.15. Lumber liquidators posting fourth-quarter sales at trailed analyst estimates as allegations that it sold flooring with unhealthy levels of formaldehyde continue to ward off customers. And Energy Energy, the worst-performing member of the S&P 500 utility index so far this year, reported adjusted profit in the fourth quarter that beat analyst forecasts. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thank you so much. Futures up three again. Fractional move there this morning. It is 848 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Paula Dwyer, an editor with Bloomberg View. For a candidate who promises to make America great again, Donald Trump has a funny way of showing it. He has called for consumer boycotts of products sold by numerous companies, including Apple, Macy's, and Nabisco. He has denigrated United Technologies and Ford Motor for making air conditioners and car parts in Mexico. He even wants Americans to boycott the entire country of Mexico. Indeed, Trump seems to be doing his level best to hurt American business. A Trump tirade may have a minimal effect on a company's earnings and jobs, but if he wins the presidency, he could cause real economic harm. Apple is just the latest target. He wants consumers to retaliate against the company for refusing to unlock the iPhone of the San Bernardino terrorist. He also urged a boycott of Starbucks for choosing a plain red design for its holiday season cups and not traditional scenes like Christmas trees. He even took offense when Macy stopped selling his clothing line because he called Mexican immigrants rapists and drug dealers. Trump's antagonists know how to play the game, too. They're calling for boycotts of all things branded Trump. There's even a Facebook page listing the golf courses, office buildings, and casinos to avoid. In politics, turnabout is fair play. I'm Paula Dwyer, an editor with Bloomberg View. For more commentary and opinion, please go to BloombergView.com. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard on hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Mike, I've been remiss. I have not mentioned German to your ugly morning, uh, a little bit of a rebound, a lesser Negative yield, negative 0.57 to three decimal points. I'm struggling here, negative 0.562. The 10-year had a 10 handle on it, 0.10. A higher yield, 0.119 is still jaw-dropping. Well, a lot of reaction in Europe to the uh, lower-than-forecast inflation inflation numbers. In the United States... In contrast, we've had higher than forecast inflation numbers, which is why it's a good thing to be talking with Eric Weissman because uh, he is a uh, investment officer, portfolio manager at MFS Investment Management in charge of the firm's inflation-adjusted bond, uh, strategic income, and global bond portfolios. Um, 
at this point, l- let's separate the two out and, and talk about inflation in the United States, Eric. Uh, are you seeing anybody interested in inflation-linked bonds at this point, given the numbers we got last week from the CPI and the PCE? Well, you are seeing some interest there now. If you look at 10-year inflation break-evens, that's the difference between the nominal bond and the real yield from a TIPS bond. That had bottomed out around 120 basis points, and in the last handful of trading days, has begun to rebound, and we're above 140, and a reasonable place to be would seem to be quite a bit higher. Before all the madness of this global financial crisis and its aftermath, 250 would have been a reasonable place to be in 10-year tips break-evens, and more recently, maybe 180 was a reasonable place, so 140 still looks pretty cheap. What, do you think this continues, or is this just a bounce based on the numbers? Uh, are people really getting concerned about inflation in the U.S. and whether or not the Fed is behind the curve? Mm. I don't think they're getting concerned as much as looking at that level and saying it's too low. That inflation break-evens, looking at that relationship between tips bonds and nominal bonds, is just too low. That's sort of a panic level. That's looking at uh, priced for negative perfection, everything going pear-shaped. And it doesn't look like that's where we are. The macro looks a little bit better recently. we got better retail sales, better uh, income, right. better spending. So maybe it's not quite as bad as those numbers would indicate. If we start with our listeners of all persuasions, their heads are spinning even if they know the math or they pretend to understand the Fabozzi yield curve. What's your to-do list for people, not yield hogs, I mean, let's assume we're not trying to help them. They always end up crashing and burning. But what's the MFS to-do list for people that need, it's, just, it's a, such a quaint phrase, that people that need income. Well, it depends upon your risk tolerance, but I tell you, we've talked about this before. If you look at high-yield spreads, they seem to be pricing in recession, and we don't believe we're going into recession. It's not very often that you can pick up almost 800 basis points over treasuries in high yield, and even if you want something that's a little more secure in high grade, these levels of spreads are giving you an opportunity unless you believe that we're going into something that looks like 2008 again. Well, could we in certain sectors? Well, I think you still want to stay away from uh, energy and materials. I think that story continues as long as we're still looking for a bottom in China. That winds up impacting EM, which winds up hitting industrial production and global trade, and those sorts of sectors, I think, continue to be on, on their back foot. When you look at the the battle over this, so much of it comes down to our audience looks at single-point yield and pros look at spread market. How would you explain to the average person that they look at the mumbo-jumbo of the 210 spread, the three-month, two-year spread, the belly of the curve, five to seven years, et cetera? What's your approach on that? I think you want to look at all of those different points, and as you say, you need to look at it in a spread basis. You need to look at it on an absolute basis. And one of the themes that we like to talk about is when does nominal matter and when does real matter? Thank you. And and in this environment, you can get really bogged down in the fact that uh, yields are so low and in places negative on a nominal basis. Don't lose sight of what's going on in real terms. And just as a very quick example, 
you should be indifferent between getting a 1% yield in a 3% inflation environment and a negative 1% yield in a 1% inflation environment. But we're not, because when we see those negative yields, we're sort of appalled. But don't lose track that those are both negative 2% returns. So you should be indifferent. Eric Weissman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With uh, MFS, a walk through the bond market uh, this morning. I, I, I asked the, the Bill Gross question there, uh, uh, Mike, the idea of financial repression. Yes. And, uh, boy, my anecdotal this weekend is is it, it, there's just a certain desperation among a certain part of the public. Well, and, there are people you – know, the, the argument is being made now that – We've gone beyond what benefit you can get from uh, additional Fed easing to the point where you, the, you're, you're actually hurting yourself because of the financial repression and people can't make any money on uh, their savings. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there it is. What are you going to listen for tomorrow in Washington? Well, I'm, I mean, for, away from Chairman Greenspan and Jason Furman. Oh, you cheated. No, go ahead. Because <laughs> I wanted to mention Please. Chairman Greenspan. And the idea that we can ask him about uh, negative rates and certainly as a scholar of uh, what works and what doesn't. But yeah. uh, we're also going to be talking with uh, some political pros, um, you know, the, the, uh, the whole business of campaigning has gone high tech. And yeah. uh, we've got some people coming in who will explain to us yeah. how that works. We hope that we're your location tomorrow, folks, for non-hysteria. I, Mike, I saw breathless, maybe hysteria is the wrong word, breathless entertainment this weekend. We, we, we've we turned all of and I'm as guilty of this, John Tucker, I, has told me three or four okay, times guilty. I'm guilty of it. We've turned it into an entertainment event. Uh, it's not. Unfortunately, the press has done that, at least on the Republican side, because <clears throat> they're so fascinated with the he said, she said. Well, it's he said, he said, since there are no women left on the Republican side yeah. running for president, um, rather than what they're saying about their economic policies. Yeah, and, and I, I think it wasn't much different on the other side until Secretary Clinton did better than good in South Carolina. Well, can I uh, do a shameless plug here for Please. Bloomberg Intelligence, our Please. analyst unit? They have a whole series of economic analyses out this morning of uh, the various candidates, uh, particularly of Mr. Trump, the frontrunner's proposals and what they would mean for the economy and companies. And if you are a subscriber to the Bloomberg Professional Service, which, of course, you want to be, you want to look those up. Okay. Very good. There it is, a sell on Bloomberg Intelligence uh, as well. Michael McKeon, Tom Keene in New York today. Good morning, Bloomberg 1130. Bloomberg 1200 Boston. Really celebrating the, um, the the true celebration of a Boston Globe from another time and place ago. Good well, good morning to Mr. Barron down at the Washington Post, who uh, was part of that spotlight effort. It's Bloomberg Surveillance.